As a pastor, I have officiated many weddings. And one thing I've learned about the traditional wedding ceremony is that it's structured in a way where all the focus is on the bride. Because you see, in the beginning of the service, you have the groom, the groomsman, and the officiant waiting patiently up on stage. And then you have the bridesmaids come down one by one. And then you've got, oh, actually before the bridesmaids, you've got the parents coming down, followed by the bridesmaid, then the ring boy, and then the flower girl. And what does the flower girl do? She throws petals onto the floor because only the bride gets to walk down uh, uh, a row of petals. After that, the music prelude stops, and an entirely new song begins. Oftentimes, it's Wagner's Here Comes the Bride, and the double doors open, and you could hear a collective gasp as everyone sees for the first time the bride in all of her splendor and beauty. Talk about an entrance. The wedding ceremony is structured in a way where it highlights the beauty and the significance of the bride. Now compare that entrance with that of Jesus into this world 2,000 years ago. We find no double doors swinging open for him. In fact, all the doors are closed to him, forcing Joseph and Mary to find the only place open, a place without doors or windows. They are forced to a stable built for animals. I don't know if we fully appreciate the scandal of Jesus being born in a stable. Today, you and I see tons of nativity scenes, and oftentimes they're pictured in romanticized colors with soft hues and colors. But let that not take away from the scandal of Christmas. If Jesus were born today, he'd likely be, be, be born in a tent under the overpass of the 101 freeway. How shocking it must have been for the angels to see Jesus' first home be that built for animals. How shocking it must have been for the angels to see that Jesus' first bed was a manger, which is a euphemism for a wooden trough that horses and donkeys eat out of. When you consider the manner of Jesus' entrance, you cannot help but stand in open-mouthed wonder. Jesus, the Son of God, has chosen to come with such humility. And it is this wonder that I want to explore this morning with you. The wonder that I hope we can rekindle and recapture. Today we're going to look at the wonder of the Incarnation. And to help us grasp this wonder, we're going to look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 and 14. And so here now, the, the reading of God's word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was God 
He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that has been created. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, most stories begin with the phrase, once upon a time. John's story begins with before there was time. He says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the opening verse, John identifies Jesus as the Word of God, and he tells us that this word was with God and this word was God. Now, why does John identify Jesus as the word? Well, if you think about it, words are vehicles for revelation. We use words to reveal who we are to reveal what we want, what we like, what we don't like. It's through our words that people come to know us. And so John calls Jesus the Word because Jesus reveals God. He communicates who God is, what he likes, what he doesn't like, what God's character is like. Specifically in chapter 1, John tells us that Jesus reveals God's glory and truth. Through Jesus' words and actions, he communicates God's being. He is the living word of God. And why is Jesus uniquely gifted to reveal God's being to us? It's because he himself is God. Jesus is not just a messenger sent from God. He's not just someone who is friends with God. No, Jesus is uniquely equipped to reveal who God is because Jesus himself is God. John sums this point up in verse 18. No one has ever seen God the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. And so John begins with an exalted view of Jesus Christ. He gets as exalted as you can possibly be with someone. He declares to us that Jesus is the eternal word of God. He is very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father. He is the full radiance of God's glory in whom the fullness of deity dwells. He is Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And just when we're beginning to appreciate the wonder of Jesus' deity, John stops us in our tracks. He says something that staggers us. In verse 14, he writes, The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is where we get the word incarnation. 
incarnate. If you want to know what it means, if you've ever had a carne asada burrito, <laughs> if you've ever had chile con carne, you can guess what it means. Carne could be translated as meat. And of course, we're not going to say that the word became meat. That's offensive to our sensibilities. But within the lexical range of carne is the word flesh. I mention this because I want you to see just how startling, how scandalous it is for God to become flesh, to take on flesh and dwell among us. No one could ever imagine, especially those in the Old Testament, no one ever imagined that God would become flesh, would become carne for us. Contrary to the conspiracy theories you find on the web, Jesus was not a ghost who appeared to be human, neither was he an alien sent from outer space. No, if you put Jesus' tissue under the microscope, what you will find is human DNA. He is as human as you and I are human. He was susceptible to colds and bronchitis, and if he lived today, he may have gotten COVID. He had to learn how to talk, how to read, how to write. He knew what it's like to bruise and scrape a knee. He knew what it's like to sleep wrong and wake up with a kink in your neck. He knew what it's like to be so hungry, you're just angry at everyone. He knew what it's like to be anxious and lose your appetite. He knew what it's like to be lonely and feel like no one really understands you. Just as Jesus is very God of very God, John tells us that Jesus is also very man of very man. Just without sin. And that is the wonder of the incarnation the one who fuels the infinite number of stars in outer space and gives it its heat and light has become as weak and helpless as a newborn baby. The one who holds the entire universe together needs to be held and soothed by Mary. Jesus is the conjunction of omnipotence and impotence. And Tim Keller writes, quote, The incarnation is the universe sundering, history-altering, life-transforming, paradigm-shattering event of history. God did what we thought was impossible. He became a man. I love what J.I. Packer says. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. 
God became man, the divine son became a Jew, the almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. Or if you like more concise quotes, St. Augustine said that on Christmas, gold became grass. And so the wonder of Christmas is amplified when you hold these twin wonders together. The wonder of Jesus' divinity coupled with the wonder of Jesus' humanity sitting side by side together without confusion and without compromise. He is the God-man. And when you meditate on who Jesus is, you'll slowly begin to wonder or realize the wonder of Christmas. Now, a question I want us to consider is why? Why did God become man? Why did the Word become flesh? John gives us the answer in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. And so the Son of God became a man so that man might become sons of God. Jesus had to become a child so that we might become children of God. Because of sin, we were estranged from God. In fact, we weren't just strangers of God who didn't know God. No, the Bible tells us that we were enemies of God. We rebelled against his authority because it threatened our self-sovereignty. We didn't want to submit to anyone. We wanted to rule our lives ourselves. And so we pushed God away and pretended that he is not there. And as a result, our sins separated us from God. But God, in his great love for us, sent us his son to become one of us and to die on the cross for our sins. And we later realized that because mankind is the one who needs reconciliation, then a man alone can save mankind. Jesus had to become a man in order to be our covenant representative. And as our representative, live the life we were supposed to live and then die the death that we deserved to die. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, Now since the children, meaning you and I, have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, 
that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Mankind was held in captivity by our sin, evidenced by the one fate we all are aimed towards, death. And so Jesus became flesh and blood to suffer and die in order to rescue us from captivity so that we might live with God forever. Now that I've answered why Jesus had to become a man, I want to use the remainder of our time to share with you three applications of the Incarnation. Three ways the word becoming flesh impacts us today. First, the incarnation means that there is meaning and purpose to our lives. There's meaning and purpose to our lives. I recognize that the message of Christmas goes against the dominant cultural assumptions that exist about ultimate reality today. If you run into most people on the street, they usually hold to one of two views. The first view is the belief that if there is a God who created this world, that God is unknowable. There are many who say, you know what? There might be a God, there might not be a God, but even if there is a God, Jeff, even if there is a God who created the universe, that God does not want to be known. And so there's no point in trying to figure out who God is or what he desires You just need to make the most of life yourself. This is what we call agnosticism. On the other hand, there are those who look at the world and say, you know what, there is no God. All reality is made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. Everything consists of matter. There is no spiritual world. There is no invisible realm. There is no God. Immaterial realities like love, beauty, and morality, these are all just products of evolutionary biology. But that's all that we're made of is stuff. These are what we call materialists. Now, can materialists prove that no spiritual world, no invisible realm exists? Of course not. Can agnostics prove that the God who created the universe is unknowable? Of course not. They're all faith beliefs in and of of themselves. And unfortunately, these dominant assumptions, agnosticism and materialism, has contributed to society's overall sense of disillusionment with life. The polls are unanimous. Most people in our country believe the world is worse off today than it was 30 years ago. Just look at how many movies are glamorized the 80s. 
It's nostalgic for the 80s. Why? Because we long to go back to the 80s when all, every kid was riding their bikes, where there was, were no cell phones, where life was simple and people seemed so much happier. At the same time, the polls are unanimous. Most people in our country are pessimistic about our future. So we're nostalgic about the past and pessimistic about the future. Just look at our current race relations. Look at the state of our politics. Look at the global tensions that exist. There doesn't seem to be much hope for the future. And so skepticism and cynicism abounds in our country. And this is evidenced by our fascination with dystopian futures. The Walking Dead, Mad Max, Hunger Games, Dune, virtually every movie that depicts the future is full of cynicism and is dark. It pictures humanity full of corruption, injustice, and oppression. Why? think it's because we've taken God out of our worldview. When you take a personal God out of the universe, then life feels meaningless, random, and pointless, doesn't it? When you take a personal God out of the universe, what's left behind is a cold, callous, cruel world. The universe doesn't care about you. Since we remove the author, there's no plot line, there's no arc, there's no purpose, there's no story, there's no point to life. And it's into this cold, meaningless worldview that we have the message of Christmas. Christmas declares to us that there is a God who created the universe and that this God cares about you and me. That this God desires relationship and connection with you and me, so much so that he became one of us. He became flesh. Contrary to what our culture says, Life does have a purpose, it does have a plan, that our world does have a plot line, and that there is an author, a director of all things. Contrary to what culture says, we have purpose and meaning to our lives, and God desires to use us to fulfill his plan, not only for us, but the world as well. It infuses our meaningless lives with meaning and significance, knowing that our God is real and walked with us and walks with us. I don't know about you, but even if you are here this morning not believing in the wonder of Christmas, I hope you want it to be true. Even if you don't believe in all this Christianity stuff, I hope you'd want it to be true because 
The implications of the Christmas story offers us so much meaning and hope, more meaning and hope than any other ideology this world can provide. So that's the first application. Second, the incarnation provides deep, meaningful comfort, especially to those who are suffering. All of us here know what it's like to suffer. Some of us have experienced suffering deeply. Sometimes the holidays accentuate that suffering. And perhaps that's you this morning. Well, one thing I've learned about deep suffering is that suffering marks you, doesn't it? It changes you. It tattoos your soul so that the person you are today is different, fundamentally different from the person you were before that suffering came. If you've ever lost a child, if you've ever gone through a divorce, if you've ever been abused, if you live with a disability, if you struggle with depression, Such experiences can be so deep and powerful, it fundamentally changes who you are and how you see life. And so what begins to happen after you emerge from suffering or while you're enduring suffering is you begin to see yourself as different from those around you. You begin to see yourself as someone who is fundamentally different from those who haven't suffered the same thing as you have. And so what tends to happen with deep suffering is that it tends to isolate you. You begin to withdraw, even though people might approach you and might want to sympathize with you and hear you out and provide you comfort, you hold your feelings and thoughts in because in your mind you say to yourself, even if I share what I'm going through, they're not going to understand. They just won't. And if anything, by sharing, you run the risk of being more wounded by these people who might say something insensitive or callous. That's how suffering tends to work. It leads oftentimes to isolation, which is why I counsel people and say, join a support group. Join a support group so that you can meet other people going through the same exact experience as you. Meet with other divorcees. Meet with other couples who have lost children. Meet with those who also struggle with depression. And what often happens is as you join the support group, you find the floodgates of your heart open up. And you begin to share. You begin to tell people how you feel Why? Because you know that these people understand. When they say, wow, that must hurt, you know they mean it, and it it rings truer than said by someone else who doesn't know your pain. You see, this is why the incarnation provides us comfort. 
because God became man, we can open our hearts to him. We can share our hurts and griefs with him. We can tell him our sorrows, our stress, our sickness. We can share our bitterness and betrayal. We can talk about our loneliness and loss. Why? Because the word became flesh. God became one of us, and he knows what it's like to live in a broken and fallen world. He understands you. He sees you. He feels your emotions because the word became flesh god can be your best friend and that's the wonder of the incarnation the third application is that the incarnation helps us to understand what love looks like it helps us understand what love looks like. It helps us understand how love moves. Love moves us out of ourselves and towards another. Love moves us out of ourselves and towards another. It doesn't tell others to move towards us. No, love moves us towards others. Just as Jesus left his heavenly abode from above and moved towards us by becoming a man, so too love moves us away from self and towards others. And throughout the gospel, what we see Jesus doing is continuing this other person movement. In a way, you can say that the principle of the incarnation did not stop with Christmas. It did not end with Jesus becoming a man. No, it only begun. Jesus after becoming one of us, we see him moving towards others, stepping inside other people's shoes, experiencing what other people are feeling. When he sees the multitude, he tells the disciples, they are hungry. Let's feed them. When he sees the city of Jerusalem, he weeps. Because as he sees the city, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus comes across a leper, we are told that he felt compassion. And that word compassion is a word that resonates physically with your gut. He feels sympathy and empathy in his gut. Why? Because with the moment he saw that leopard, he stepped into the leper's shoes and felt what it would be like to be him. When he comes across a funeral procession for a widow who lost her only son, Jesus again is filled with compassion. Why? Because in that moment, he enters that widow's experience. What it must be like to not only lose a husband, but to also lose a son. Over and over again, Jesus moves into the experience of others. He empathizes with those around us. 
He shows us what love looks like. Dear friends, have you ever shared something really deep and felt like the person listening to you totally was listening and understanding you? The person wasn't just waiting for you to finish so that he or she can start talking. But the person was hanging on your every word. And even after you stopped talking, was asking follow-up questions to learn more about what you're feeling and what you're thinking so that at the end of your conversation, you felt totally seen, totally heard, that this person gets you. You know what you just experienced? Incarnational love. That person stepped into your flesh. The incarnation of Jesus invites us to do the same with others, to stop being fixated on our own wants and needs and to consider the wants and needs of others. The incarnation moves us to compassion and works of mercy and justice. It moves us to consider the experience of the homeless, the refugees, the orphans, the widows, the marginalized, the bereaved. It moves us to enter into the misery of others and to weep with them, to provide relief for them, and to even advocate and fight for them. Dear friends, how might God be calling you this day? I can't think of a better way to respond to the incarnation than to incarnate that love to others. Who might God want you to serve? And so this is the wonder of the incarnation. These are the three applications I have for you. The coming of Jesus into this world gives us meaning and purpose in life. It provides comfort, especially for those who are suffering. And it shows us what love looks like. May the wonder of the incarnation captivate your hearts this day. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for loving us to the point of becoming one of us so that we might, come, might be able to join you in eternity, so that we might be able to become children of God. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you are a God that is not aloof, cold, or calloused, or indifferent to us. You're not a God who's just a creator, but you are also redeemer. You are friend. You are a shepherd. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with the wonder of the incarnation and that you would also propel us, Lord, towards those who are in need 
so that we might feel and experience the plight of those who are suffering in this world, so that we might incarnate your love to those who need it. We thank you, O Lord, for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.